Turning to Colossians chapter 1, for those of you new to us, this is uh, part of a, an extended series preaching through the, the book of Colossians, and uh, we are in chapters 3 and 4, but I want us to go back, as we have done in recent weeks a couple of times, and read chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 to set the context for our message today. In Colossians 1 and verse 18, we read, And He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the the great overarching principle and truth of the book of Colossians, that Jesus came and He lived and He died and He rose and He ascended and He reigns so that He might be preeminent, so that He might have first place in everything, and in that place of supremacy, he might reconcile all things and all people to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, that great design, that great plan of God through his son Jesus needs to be applied in our life. How do we take this truth that He is preeminent and intends to reconcile all things and make it real in the way that we live? And that's what chapter 3 and 4 all are all about. How do we live out the reconciled life? And so in chapter 3, there are certain things that are divisive and certain things that bring about conflict that we need to put off. And then there are other things that, that end up climaxing in love. These are things we must put on in order to be reconciled with each other. And that applies, we have learned, to our marriages where husbands and wives, Paul says, are to live together in a certain kind of reconciled way. And it applies to our families and parents and children are to live together in a reconciled way. And now we come in chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, to another set of relationships, that between servants and masters, or bosses and workers, if you will, uh, in which Christ intends to reconcile relationships. Look at verse 22 of Colossians 3. Bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly 
and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Um, I'm here before you as a man who once again finds myself compelled to preach on a text that I would never choose on my own. But because we preach through books of the Bible, we come upon texts that are perhaps challenging and difficult and complicated, and this is one of those. So we need to pray uh, that the, pray- the Lord would give us grace and wisdom to hear what he has for us today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come today uh, to your word with utter dependence upon your spirit to speak to us the very things that we need to hear. And Lord, I pray that there would be grace to hear. Um, Lord, we live in a world where everything is broken. Um, But Lord Jesus, you are preeminent to bring everything back together. Help us, Lord, to make at least some tiny steps in that direction here today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we do come to a text here that immediately sends some unsettling uh, shock waves uh, through many hearts. Uh, A text that deals with masters and bondservants or slaves. And mostly... The shockwaves are due to the fact that we tend to read these texts through the lens of what happened in this and other countries uh, in the African slave trade with all of its barbarity, injustice, bigotry, and evil. What made that chattel slavery in our history so vile was that it violated so many biblical principles of dignity, equality, and justice. It treated people made in the image of God as if they were subhuman, the very thing that Paul does not do here. He violates the the cultural impulses of his day and he violates the justification of slavery in more recent time by, by honoring and dignifying those who were slaves or bond servants and treating them as human beings, speaking to them directly with respect and with honor. And he reminds them, to kind of skip ahead in the passage a little bit, he reminds them of what you've heard me call their boarding pass and their final destination. In verse 23, whatever you do, he says to servants, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In other words, you who may be slaves, you who may be servants, you who may be in a position that to the eye of the world looks as if you are inferior or subservient, Paul says, the day is coming. The day is coming when you will receive your inheritance as your reward. The day is coming when we will check your boarding pass and it says destined for glory. 
And you will receive the honor, the dignity, and the glory indeed that is your due as an image bearer of God, purchased and redeemed through the blood of Christ. Paul would have nothing to do with the type of slavery and barbarity that went on in this culture and country and in other parts of the world. It's important to know that, dear ones. Um, It's important because in our history as a nation, and I speak as a white man, in our history as a nation, white masters used to twist the scriptures to suit their purposes and justify slavery as they were practicing it. And that twisting resulted in the suffering and misery of death and death of hundreds of thousands of human beings. And we must own it and grieve it. But perhaps... As evil and tragic as that has been the fact that in recent times, more recent times, the twisting of Scripture by um, white slave owners has led many to think that Christianity is the white man's religion. And they have walked away from the faith, wanting nothing to do with the white man's religion. And the tragedy of this is that the Bible is not for white people alone. In fact, in fact, Jesus was not white. And most of the men and women of Scripture would, in today's terminology, have been called men and women of color, of one shade or another. The tragedy is that many are rejecting the faith, departing the faith because of the twisting of Scripture that has happened to the advantage of the white. Our hearts ought to just grieve beyond words. It may help, and I hesitate to take the time to do this, but I feel like I I have to, uh, given the text that we're in. To put our minds at ease a bit, let me make some assertions right up front uh, before I get to the actual text here that will show, I believe, that what was practiced in our culture was and would be in no way supported by or justified by sacred scripture. The God of the Bible would have utterly condemned and will utterly condemn those who practice what they practiced in our country. Just listen to these handful of assertions. Number one, the kidnapping or stealing of human beings to enslave them is explicitly forbidden in the Bible. New Testament and Old Testament, New Testament, 1 Timothy 1, we read the law of God is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he gives a long list, and in the middle of that list of those who are lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, is on this list enslavers. 
And the word means those who steal other human beings in order to sell them. On that basis alone, what was practiced in this country and in other countries is utterly, to use Paul's words, ungodly, profane, unholy, lawless, disobedient. It's an echo of the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That means that in the sight of God, the stealing or kidnapping of a person to sell them into slavery is a capital offense. Deserves the death penalty. Let me pause here. I tend to think, I don't tend to think, I know it as a fact that we tend to trivialize our own sins. Have you ever wondered why there are so many capital offenses in the Old Testament? Why there are so many death penalty offenses? There's two reasons. One, because it was a season and an age of great evil and God was trying to reign in the evil with severe punishment. But the second reason was this, to teach us as human beings that sin, and indeed all sin, is worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. On the day you eat of this, God said to Adam, you will surely die. Death or sin brings with it, no matter how great or small we might think it is, sin brings with it the ultimate penalty of death itself and the second death in heaven. But praise be to God, we have a Savior. We have a sin bearer. We have one who took the death penalty for us and in our place so that we do not get the death we deserve. So whenever you read those death penalty passages in the Old Testament, let it trigger thoughts of praise and wonder to Jesus Christ. Oh, that's what I deserve but Jesus. Oh, that's what I had coming to me, but Jesus. Oh, that's the punishment that was my due, but Jesus. Oh, how deep in hell must that sin, would that sin have taken me if not for Jesus? These are sobering things, aren't they? And yet they are the truth of God, for this is the Word of God. And we must bow our hearts before it. Sin in any form is serious. And God could justly judge us with death for any and all of it. But God, in Christ, has taken that death on Himself. But we must see, The kidnapping, stealing, and selling of human beings is an offense worthy of death in the sight of God. We must see, secondly, that any slavery based on supposed superiority of one race over another is a denial, a denial of the truth that we are all equally made in the image of God. 
to, to have any sense of superiority toward any other human being and to have any sense of superiority based on race or color or ethnicity is to deny the very meaning of what it means to be human. Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image, God said. And God made man, male and female, in his image. Every one of us has equal worth and value and dignity and slavery is a denial of that. In the third place, withholding fair wages is explicitly forbidden by Scripture. Don't have time to read it, but James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. At the heart of slavery was a withholding of fair wages, along with a lot of other things. James chapter 5, James was scathing prophet-like denunciation speaks to bosses and masters and condemns them for the way that they were taking advantage of workers. This is a great evil in the sight of God. Number four, except in very rare circumstances, the Bible forbids permanent servitude. Remember the year of Jubilee? Uh, what a, every time I hear the word Jubilee, there's something that goes on inside of me of joy. It just is a word that just, it speaks joy. It's, it's that year of release where debts were canceled. Slavery was canceled. Slaves were set free. It was a Jubilee year and, and, and that was built into God's world. Then number five, partiality for or against anybody is a denial of the gospel. Colossians 3 and verse 11, right? We've already seen this. Here there is, here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free there is not any of these things by way of status or superiority, but Christ is all and in all. So any treatment of any human being that denies that, either with word or in action, is a denial of the gospel. And then finally, we come to Colossians 4 and verse 1 and just see in very simple but powerful words that God forbids masters and bosses and employers from doing anything unfair or unjust. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. That is to say, don't treat them like the transatlantic slave trade treated them. Treat them justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So much more could be said here, but can I say just this, that if biblical principles of justice 
and the dignity of each and every human being and our equality in Christ as sons and daughters of the living God and fairness and justice and fair wages and opportunity for freedom. If all of those things had been practiced, there never would have been slavery as it was known in this country and in others. The Bible fundamentally opposes it. And we need to understand that, both for our own struggles with what does the Bible really say about this, and hopefully to help those who have been deceived into, sometimes understandably, but they've been deceived into thinking that Jesus is for white people only. He isn't. He is for us all and loves us all and died for us all. With all that said, that is the longest introduction to a message I have ever, I have ever given. I, I hope it's okay. Can I now, and I have to do this quickly, can I now just give you a series of statements based on this text in front of us? I would say this, that I think when all of those things that I've just said are in place, the relationship that Paul is getting at here with servants and masters, if this is done well, it would be more like a worker-boss relationship than the type of slavery in our past. Maybe with the additional uh, dimension or facet of some kind of contract signed for a period of time. But we're looking more here. I think Paul has in mind here more the, the boss worker, employer, employee relationship. And with that in mind, let me, let me give you these statements. Statement number one, workers should do whatever they're told within the bounds of God's law. Workers should do whatever they're told within the bonds, bounds of God's law. Workers should do whatever they're told within the bounds of God's law. Look at verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So long as we work wherever it is we work, our employers are to be honored and their requests are to be obeyed unless they are commanding us to do that which is ungodly and in a wicked world. That often happens and we as workers have to respectfully disobey them in those cases. We are to do what we're told unless they command something ungodly or demand from us time, energy, focus that belongs to somebody else. So, um, but still the principle applies Workers should do whatever they are told within the boundaries of God's higher law. And you may not realize it, but this applies to me as much as you. One of the benefits of having shared pastoral leadership in the church is I have a boss. Actually, I have a two-headed boss. Rick and Alex are, are my boss. Uh, if they tell me that I shouldn't be doing certain things or that I should be doing other things or I need to give my time and attention to still other things, I do not have the freedom to ignore them. I have to respect those that 
care for me and in one sense are over me in the Lord. Number two, workers should work heartily to please the Lord. Wherever we are, whatever we do, we should work heartily to please the Lord. Look at verses 22 and 23. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You know, ultimately, the truth is there's only one boss. And everyone else is under him. There's only one master. And we are to work for him, even as we're working for others. Believers in the workplace are free to obey, are called to obey their bosses without grudging or murmuring, and we're free to do that precisely because we know that in reality, they're not really our boss. Jesus is. And we work heartily and cheerfully and energetically and skillfully. Long before I became a pastor, which is 40 years ago, the first Sunday of March, um, long before I became a pastor, I worked at McDonald's. And I'm here to tell you, I was the best egg McMuffin chef that that McDonald's has ever seen. I kid you not. I was a machine. And my boss couldn't believe how hard I worked. I worked at UPS while I was in college, the 3 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock shift, loading brown delivery trucks. And while everyone else was loading three of them, I was loading seven of them every night. My bosses couldn't figure it out. What makes Tim tick? Why do you work like this? And I would say respectfully, because I'm not working for you. I'm working for my master and my savior and my Lord in heaven. And so I'm going to work heartily as unto the Lord. Not as a people pleaser, but as a Jesus pleaser. Workers should work heartily as to the Lord. Third, workers should work for the bonus that's coming. We should work for the bonus that's coming. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If we work hard and heartily and cheerfully before the Lord and for the Lord, but secondarily for our bosses and for wherever it is that we work. If we do that, they may not give us any bonus, but Jesus is going to. 
There is an inheritance awaiting us. There is eternal glory and honor and wealth and health and prosperity and a whole kingdom to reign and an earth to inherit. So workers should work for the bonus to come. And then next, workers should not think that God is partial to them. This is a counter-cultural principle here, uh, one we have to think about a bit. Workers should not think that God is partial to them. Notice verses 23 through 25. Whatever you do, he's talking to workers, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for... The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You see, the position of verse 25 here is important. It's right between words to servants and words to masters or bosses. And the, the position of it, I believe, is such that it, God intends it to apply to the workers and to the bosses. Whether you're a worker or you're a boss, whether you're an employee or an employer, God is not partial. God is not concerned about your position or your role. He is concerned that you do what is right. It is popular nowadays to think that God's heart is primarily for the poor. No, God's heart is equally for the poor and the rich, but his heart is for the poor oppressed. And his heart is set against the rich oppressor. But poverty and wealth are neutral morally. God loves all equally, treats all impartially. And Paul wants to remind these workers, look, what really matters for you in your working conditions is that you do the right things. You do what is right. Don't do what is wrong. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality with God. Deuteronomy says, the Lord our God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial. And Deuteronomy goes on to tell us that we should be like God. We should be partial neither to the rich nor to the poor. Exodus 23.3 says that we should not be partial to the poor. God is concerned about whether we are right or wrong. Do right or wrong. He's not primarily concerned about our economic status or our workplace authority or lack thereof. God is saying to us, do the right things. Next, bosses, bosses, turning our attention to bosses, bosses should never forget that their workers are their equals. Their workers are their equals. 
This is clear, the way Paul addresses the the slaves and the masters with equal dignity and respect. And, And it's clear where he addresses them that he says both slaves and masters are going to receive an inheritance. It's equal, it's also clear from chapter 3, a text we read already, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, neither barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all and in all. All of that, bosses, if you're in a place of authority, a boss in any place of authority, not just in the workplace, but how about in your home? How about moms? How about dads? How about teachers in school? How about, what is it you do? Is there anyone who in any way is under your leadership or authority? Remember at all times that that person is an equal image bearer of God for whom Christ died and treat them accordingly. Next, bosses should be just and fair in all they do. We have to define that as God does and we don't have time to get into all that but it According to verse 1 of chapter 4, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Searching out other scriptures, that means fair wages. That means healthy working conditions. That means opportunity for freedom and advancement where at all possible. It means respect without partiality or superiority. It means no classism. Uh, It means no flaunting of the boss's wealth or position. Bosses should be just and fair in all they do. And next, bosses should know that they are not the boss. Bosses should know that they are not the boss. Verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Mm. If you're in a place of authority, guard your heart. There is a preeminent one. There is one who occupies first place. And one day you will stand before him and give an account for how you have treated those who work for you, those who seem under you by way of role or function, you are not the boss. He is. And finally, everyone should know, whether worker or boss, should know that we will answer to God. Chapter 3, verse 25, or chapter 3 and verse, yeah, 25. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. We will all answer to God. You know, there is a warning here and with this I close there is a warning here 
to those in authority, you will answer to God. Fear God. Fear God. There is a warning here to those in authority. There is a promise of hope here to those oppressed and downtrodden. Ultimately, brothers and sisters in Christ, our hope cannot be that we are ever going to achieve full justice and righteousness on this earth, in this age, before heaven. So what do we hope for? What do we do? Doesn't mean we don't pray about that and work for that and pursue that, but we're never going to achieve it to perfection. So where is our hope? Our hope is in this. The judge of all the earth will do right. God will make all wrongs right. God's got this. And again, that is not to make us passive in the moment as we encounter injustice and wrongdoing, but it is to give us hope and it does keep us from living a life of perpetual rage and anger and, and, and uh, distress because we know, oh Lord, you've got this. Please make it right. And thank you for the promise. Thank you for the promise that the day is coming the day is coming when every wrong will be dealt with firmly and finally and forever by the judge of all the earth. And every right, every moment you and I do the right thing, even in the face of wrongdoing and injustice, every right will be rewarded. And our Savior will say, well done. Well done. Oh, what a heartbreaking world we live in. Friday morning, I think it was Friday, in my devotions, I was reading in Joshua chapter 2, and I came across these words. The Lord your God. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And I thought, as I shared with the prayer group yesterday, I thought, and I mean this with profound respect, that was the ultimate mic drop statement of Scripture. End of story. The Lord your God he is God in heaven above and on earth below. And what does that mean? He's got this. He is God. Let us lift our eyes to him and let us trust in him and let us wait for him and let us look for that day when we will see him and he makes everything new. And until then, May we, by the grace of God and for the glory of Christ, may we do what is right for his praise. And he will smile upon us. Let's pray. Father, 
If in anything I have said this morning I have erred from your truth, if in anything I have said I have failed to to speak accurately or with proper care, I ask your forgiveness and I ask for your Spirit's help to overcome the deficiencies and the fallibility of the one speaking to do a personal and wonderful work in each one of our hearts to bring whatever is needed by way of conviction or comfort. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Um, Our prayer is, as your brothers in the Lord, that uh, the Lord's grace and peace will go with you. Uh, May it be that wherever you go and whatever you do, you will know that the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And may knowing that bring you peace comfort, hope, strength, and grace for anything you might face this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.